the message today title is I will hear of you. And I, I envision or when I hear that, I think about Paul because it's something he says in the verse. He is speaking to the church at Philippi and he says, I will hear of you. And so what he is saying is there Paul always keeps up with the churches that he's speaking to. And so he is saying, be accountable. I will hear what's going on at your church. And I want to know that things are going well. I, a few years back, I had like a geographical clock go off my body, you know, several years back. Before, you know, I kind of thought, you know, that happened in the Bible land somewhere. It's okay. But now I just can't stand it. I have to know where things are. And the order. So let me, they got a slide for you right here. This is what we're talking about today. Philippi is almost, it is the very top word on the left hand side. So you see Philippi out there, and that's what we're talking about today. So if you come on down, you can see Rome over here. And so Rome is certainly part of our story today. And so that is where Philippi is, and that's. Paul's second and third missionary journeys, all that different travel in there. And so if you're not a map person, just thank you for letting me share all that with you. But that's, that's got become fascinating stuff for me is where things happen in the Bible. The next slide that I have for you kind of shows you when things happen. This, if you look at the top and you go back one spot, that's our lesson today. And so I have that up there. It's, you can't read it real well, but I have it up there because in the timeline, there's about four other slides of this length that talk about what's happened in Paul's life. And so if you could stack these other four up back through, through here, you would see that Paul has already done an immense amount in his life. And we are at the very end of his life. We are at the very end. And so as he is talking to the church at Philippi, he has had all kinds of things already happen to him. So that's kind of where we are today. So if you don't mind, let's stand. And I'd love to read our text to you today. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you, that you are standing firm in the Spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. In no way learned by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted, for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here in me. Okay, you can be seated. When I was in school and teachers taught, I always loved it when they went, now this will be on the test. Because when they said, now this will be on the test, I knew instantly to start writing. That's something I needed to know. In these four verses, two sentences, Paul is really saying to the Philippians, this is what will be on the test. He gives us something to focus on. He gives us something to contribute and he gives us something to give. And that's what we're going to talk about today, those three things. Something to focus on. He says in this passage, live a life worthy of the gospel. 
I don't know about you all, but I here live a life worthy of the gospel. Worthy of the gospel. The gospel is so powerful. It's such a grand thing. When you think of living a life worthy of the gospel, you're talking about an awesome life. You know, Christ lived, he died, he rose again, he ascended to heaven. That's the gospel. And so when we think about that, and we think about living a life worthy of that, boy, we're talking about a lot. So let's unpackage that a little bit. The Greek word for worthy is a word which we get our English word for axis. It, it, it kind of conveys the balancing scale. And in this balancing scale, what Paul is really communicating here is that we have an earthly citizenship and we have a heavenly citizenship. And we have to balance those two things. And this citizenship also carries a little bit further meaning when you look at it to the Romans. The Romans were very proud to be Romans. They were just, you know, you know, you had many rights as a Roman citizen. And so the word worthy says you have certain privileges, certain rights. And so if you look at that, what we want to do is live a life worthy of the gospel, which is sometimes difficult. Let's look at the messenger of the, of the sentence, worthy of the gospel. We look at Paul. Paul wrote this, and we just looked at his timeline and his life. When we look at Paul, I'm going to go back. This is actually his second missionary journey, his first trip to Philippi. We know when he went there the first time, he was sharing, he led a, led a young woman to Christ. And there was a little girl that was following him, and she kept repeating the same phrase over and over and over. And when she repeated that phrase, the Bible says Paul became annoyed. I always loved that because Paul, somebody worthy of the gospel, he became annoyed. Well, I'm like, Anybody can become annoyed at the time that Paul can. But this, this girl kept repeating this phrase. So Paul handled it very differently than what we would expect. He cast out the demon in her that was causing her to repeat this phrase as she followed them around. Well, that created a problem. And the reason it created a problem was there was men that owned her because she was a slave girl. They owned her, and what she did was tell fortunes. Well, she couldn't tell fortunes anymore. And so it cost them money. And because it cost them money, they wanted to get even with Paul. So they went and said, this man is teaching customs that we as Romans will not accept. And they had him thrown in prison. Actually, they beat him and threw him in prison. So Paul ends up in prison. And so we can see at that point, he was... Somebody certainly that was all sold out for the gospel, living a life worthy of the gospel in prison. And we know later the earthquake comes, loosens his chains, and Paul walks out of prison. You know, we all know that children's story. And as he is writing here, he is writing from his location, and he is in prison in Rome. So he's writing back to the church. So when we say, what does it mean to be worthy of the gospel? We have to ask the question, if we do good Bible study, does it mean that that's something we do? Is it, is it something we do? Do we have to be like Paul and, and do all these things to be worthy of the gospel? Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. 
not of not a result of works that any man should boast. And so we never we don't become saved by what we do, and it's not what we do that makes us worthy of the gospel. What we do that makes us worthy of the gospel is exactly what Paul did. We make the mistake sometimes at looking at all the great accomplishments, accomplishments that Paul did. Those, those things that would be stacked up across the stage that I was describing earlier. But what Paul did that made him worthy of the gospel was he listened to Jesus. He yielded his life to Jesus. And Jesus spoke to him. And told him the direction he should take. Jesus spoke to him and told him which way he should go. And how he should accomplish things. And how he might go about doing stuff. And so that was the reason Paul was worthy of the gospel. And that's the only reason any of us could ever be worthy of the gospel. Is that we just simply listen to Jesus. We allow him to direct our life. We have to yield to the gospel. And when you yield to the gospel, you can live a life worthy of the gospel. I think of the word yield, I'm always reminded of a Jerry Clower story. Some of you are laughing already, you say the name Jerry Clower and it becomes funny. But there's this old farmer, and he'd gotten a new car, and he hadn't been to town in years, and so he headed off to town. And they put the interstate in since he had been there last time, so he thought, I'll take the interstate. Well, old farmer's coming down the ramp on the interstate. Another car's coming. The old farmer just plows right in the side of him. The guy's furious because he has to, you know, run with him a new car. And he gets out and he goes, what are you doing? Didn't you see that yield sign? Old farmer looked at him and said, yeah, I saw it. And I yield at you three times, but you didn't pay any attention. And sometimes that's what we're doing to God. We're, we're yelling at him, but we think he's not listening. And what we have to do is yield to the gospel. We have to yield to the gospel and let God use us. And then our life can be worthy of the gospel. We can be a vessel that God uses when we just yield to the gospel. We get caught up in what we think we need to do instead of what we need to be. And what we need to be is vessels that we just allow God to direct us. We stay in the Word. We pray. But we often make it far more complicated than it needs to be. And so we think, live a life worthy of the gospel? I can't do that. You can. It's just simply allowing God to use you as He wants to use you. A life worthy of the gospel allows us to yield to His strength and His power and only we might yield to his purposes. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is the gospel. It is a price to be paid. Living a life worthy of the gospel is simply this, submission. You yield. You let God direct you. You let God lead you. And if you want to have a life worthy of the gospel, it's not what you do because that's what you would do in your own power. And if you're doing it in your own power, it's all of you. If you yield and let God use you, then it's all Him. And if it's all Him, we're living a life worthy of the gospel. So we just sometimes make things far more difficult than they should be. So that's something to focus on. Live a life worthy of the gospel.
something to contribute is unity. We all need to contribute unity. The verse says this, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Unity, working together. And you might be sitting there and saying, Ed, I can't cause unity for the whole church. You're right. You can only do your part. And that's the point. We all do our point to cause unity. You know, you could really say living in unity is a part of being worthy of the gospel. Paul saw, saw it so important for the church at Philippi as he broke it out as a second item here to emphasize it. Sure, it's part of living a life worthy of the gospel, but it's also so important that we live in unity that he goes through and he gives us several things. Firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Matthew 18 says, if you have a problem with your brother, you go to your brother. You don't go to everybody else. You go to the problem you have with. If we need to offer forgiveness, what we do is offer forgiveness. That's our part. Don't withhold forgiveness. You know, in here, in this very room, we play three-on-three basketball. I understand there's no referees when they play three-on-three basketball. When you have a foul, you call a foul on yourself. And that's what we have to do in life. If we're going to live in unity, if we're going to be a church that strives together, you have to look at yourself. And there's oftentimes when we need to call a foul on ourselves. Now, I understand it's a lot easier to go, oh, they did foul, but when you have to call a foul on yourself, it's a little bit more difficult. But that's what we have to do. There's a story about a, about a man that had three sons. And these three sons had a business together. They all worked together in this one big business. It became really chaos. A lot of discord, a lot of infighting, a lot of things were going on. So the, the older father said, I'm going to take care of this. So he just simply went out and he got a long bamboo stick. He brought it into his sons and he gave it to one of them and he said, here, take this. He was the strongest one, so he said, break it in half. The man went, so they said, okay. The father took it, put the two together. He said, break this. Boom. No problem. He put them back together. Now we had four. The guy went, boom. Really stout. Now he had eight. The man took the sticks and he began to struggle with them, but he could no longer break the sticks. And the point made itself to his sons. If you work together, if there's more of you, you are far stronger together than you would ever be by yourself. And for the church at Philippi and for the church at Alton, it's true. We are far stronger together than we would ever be by ourselves. And we have to call fouls on ourselves. We have to offer forgiveness. We have to have the strength and the trust in the gospel to apply Matthew 18. We have to do these things if we're going to walk in unity. I use the example oftentimes of a school of fish. I like the example because, you know, in a school of fish, you have, you know, just a big body of fish. 
in this body of fish, they're swimming in different depths, just like the church. We have people at all kinds of different maturity levels. We have people going in all kinds of different directions. A church that's doing well is really organized chaos, just like a school of fish. What makes a school of fish a school of fish is they move together. You know, when a school of fish is going, you often have one swimming this way and one swimming this way. They're swimming different directions. The fish that's swimming this way sees the geography over here. But the fish swimming this way sees the geography over here. Is it wrong that they describe things differently? No, they see different things. It's just like that in the church sometimes. We have two people, one swimming this way, and they see the geography over here. One is swimming this way, and they can see the geography over here. Neither one of them are wrong, but what we have to do is put Jesus and the gospel as the priority and just work together. We can't do both things. We have to do one thing if we're going to be in unity. And if we're going to move together as like a school of fish, like a church moving together, we sometimes have to take our own personal feelings, our own personal thoughts, set them aside so that we can accomplish the gospel. Unity is often keeping the main thing the main thing. And what is the main thing? I don't need to tell you. What is the main thing? Jesus. The main thing we have to keep at the top. And so sometimes our personal desires, the way we do ministry, what we do in ministry, is very secondary to keeping the main thing the main thing. There's something else, something to give. So there's been something to focus on, something to contribute, unity, and there's something to give. What is there to give according to this passage? What we have to give is our life. I always find it interesting when people come to the church and they go, I can't believe that church. All they want is my money. And I always think, whenever I hear that, that's not really what the church wants. What the church wants would probably be much worse to you. What Jesus wants would be much worse to you. What Jesus wants is your life. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. It's a life I live in the flesh. I give up. I give it up so that Christ can direct my life, what we were talking about earlier, that makes us worthy of the gospel. We give that life up. Our text says it this way in Philippians 1.29. For to you it has been granted, for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. I don't know about you all, but you know, when I look around in America, Spiritual suffering doesn't happen a lot. You know, in comparison, now I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but in comparison to other countries, we're blessed. And I guess you could say we're blessed. We'll talk about that a little bit. But, you know, in America, suffering for me, you know, and just looking at how I use the word suffering or suffered or suffer, you know, if I'm grilling out and we don't have ketchup, 
you know, I don't think you can have a burger without ketchup. But Trisha uses mayo. So if we had, if, if we had, we're allowed to go, if we got ketchup, just make sure. And she goes, no, we just have mayo. I would go, man, I'm not going to suffer through a meal with no ketchup for my burger. And that's how I would use suffer. Or if we're in the car. Now, she plays different music than I do. Sometimes we're pretty compatible. But every now she plays different music than me. And if we're hearing Frank Sinatra or, you know, she got on a kick for Phantom of the Opera one time. Oh, about drove me insane. Every time I got anywhere, I'd hear Phantom of the Opera playing. And sometimes I'd hear it even when I wasn't in the car. But, you know, trying to be a good husband, I'd get in the car because we always take her car when we're going somewhere. Phantom of the Opera would be playing, and I would try to get through it one time. But when he got that second time around, I'd go, oh, Trisha. I'm suffering here. Can't you put in a different CD? Or, you know, sometimes we even use the word suffer like this, you know, in, in, a, in a mode of sarcasm. You know, I had to go to vacation last week. I spent all last week in the Bahamas or in Gatlinburg or Florida or wherever you go. And I had to suffer all week. You know, sarcasm. And we think about suffer that way. When I was in Shanghai, and I say Shanghai because when I went to Shanghai, I, I said all the time, man, I love your city. Shanghai is so nice. And every person there would always correct me and go, no, not Shanghai, Shanghai. It's like song with an H. So, I mean, I said it over and over and over. And every person corrected me. So I said, okay, okay, I'm going to say this right. So it's Shanghai. If you say it in Shanghai, that's what it is. But while I was there, we had a pastor friend who met us there that had been led to the Lord by a previous team, and he had become a pastor in Shanghai. And he, we were asking him all kinds of questions about what was going on and what was happening and what it was like to be a pastor there. And he began to tell us how they'd been locked up several times. Like they gathered all the pastors together and locked them up and kept them in prison for a period of time. I was like, wow. And he said, but the last time they let us go. And I said, well, what happened? He said, well, we got word that the police were all coming to lock us up. So all the pastors had a big meeting. And we all got together on the designated date, and we had our toothbrush and our pillows, and we marched to the, to the prison, not to the prison, but to the police station, singing on our way, and we said, here we are, lock us up. And the police looked at them and said, what are you, what, what are you doing? And they said, we heard you want to lock us up, and so we're here, lock us up. And they went, go home. Go home. They thought they were crazy. But, you know, that's, that's people who are really ready to suffer for the gospel. That's not suffer like me with my burger. That's like suffering for the gospel. They thought they were going to be in prison, away from their family, for an undesignated amount of time. But they were willing to go. The text here we have today says, don't be scared of your opponents. God will take care of you. He certainly took care of them. And it meant a lot to me. That story has always stuck with me. We don't have to be scared of our opponents. Paul wants to know the church. Paul wants the church to know it's a privilege to suffer for his sake. 
You know, Paul wrote to the Corinthian church to be unyielding, undivided, unafraid in the battle against the enemies of Christ. To Paul, that possibility was not a prospect to be avoided at all costs. It was a privilege to be embraced. Thinking about suffer for Christ, thinking about it being a privilege to be embraced puts everything in a different context. God uses persecution and suffering for his purposes. Exactly why God does that, I don't know. It's a holy mystery. But the fact that he uses persecution is a certainty. We don't experience so much here, but people in other countries definitely know suffering and have experienced suffering. And it's something that we shouldn't be scared of. You know, for us as Americans, this is probably one of the big arenas. And as grandparents, as young parents, as people, this is something I want you to pray about. There's all kinds of categories of suffering. But when we think about our children sometimes and what God might ask of our children, sometimes, you know, we're fine with us. You want to send me somewhere? Okay. But don't send my loved ones. Don't send my wife or my child somewhere to a, to a strange foreign country to do your work because that's off limits. They deserve the American dream. They deserve the American lifestyle. And the truth of the matter is, as Christians, we're far better off being wherever God calls us to be, living a life worthy of the gospel. That's the truth. Nick and Ruth Ripken, IMB missionaries, interviewed over 700 persecuted Christians in 72 countries. And they wrote this. And I will close with this. But this is what they wrote. Much to our surprise, believers in persecution did not ask us to pray that their persecution would cease. Instead, they begged us to pray that they would be obedient through their suffering. And that is a very different prayer. And when we can take our desires, our goals, and set them aside and start looking at what Christ wants us to do. For Paul, that oftentimes meant that he was in prison. We talked about the story where he's in the prison at Philippi. And he, is, he and Silas are in chains singing praises to the Lord. The Philippian jailer comes to know the Lord. Do you think the Philippian jailer could have come to the Lord if Paul would have been moaning about being in prison? If he would have said, God, you've got a purpose for my life. I need to be out there in Philippi walking the streets doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Do you think the Philippian jailer would have come to Christ? No, Paul accepted where Christ had him. He said, this is good, whatever it was. This is good. This is okay. I will accept where I am and see what happens. I feel like sometimes we miss a life, living a life worthy of the gospel because we think we should be somewhere else. That whatever's going on in our life should be different. And oftentimes we pray for people around us that they'll get out of their situation and something different will occur and it'll be much different and they won't have this suffering or this problem. When in truth... What we should do is pray, I pray that my friend or my son or my daughter or my whoever it is understands what God's doing in our life right now. 
that they'll see what God is trying to accomplish, that they'll be able to live a life worthy of the gospel because God is doing things in their life and he is showing them things. Because as long as we're going, it needs to be different. We're in control. We are trying to manage the situation and make it work the way we see worthy. And that's not worthy, folks. Worthy, living a life worthy of the gospel, is trusting God in every aspect of your life and believing that God is in control of it. So in this short passage, the test that he gave us, the test that he's writing to the Philippians, the test that he's writing to the people in Alberton is something to focus on. Live a life worthy of the gospel. Something to contribute. Unity. Do everything in your power to create unity. Call your own vows. Offer forgiveness. Don't hold grudges. Do whatever it takes to live in unity. And there's something to give your life. Lay your life down. Live and believe that what God is causing in your life, what's occurring in your life, is just like Paul. And whether you're in prison or whether you're prospering, you're living the life that God's given you. And you're going the direction that God's given you. And that will be different for every person in this room. So take what God has given you. Don't look at other people and wish you had that life. Take the life that God's given you. Listen to what he is saying to you. And accept the circumstances you're in and say, God, what are you trying to teach me? Because I want to live a life worthy of you.